Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. This is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Saturday, time for a Vault episode. This one originally aired September 29th, 2020. Rob, this was the interview that you did with the neuroscientist David Eagleman. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Uh, gets, he gets into some really cool ideas here, a possible explanation for what dreams are for, and uh, one of my favorite parts, how in which ways uh, is the human brain like a Mr. Potato? Is a Mr. Potato different from a Mr. Potato Head? Well, it's Mr. Potato Head, yes. Uh, I, oh, okay. I guess actually it's not Mr. It's just Potato Head now, right? Well, I think now there is still a Mr. Potato Head, but there's also a broader Potato Head concept. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I, I haven't followed all the Potato Head news, but I've, I've caught wind of some of the like the faux outrage over uh, over some of it. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, at any rate, uh, it's a uh, Eagleman uses the Potato Head um, uh, as a wonderful metaphor for exactly how our brain works when you plug different sensory inputs into it. So, uh, I highly recommend it. It's a great, great, a really enjoyable interview. I enjoyed it. I think uh, folks will enjoy it as well. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. Joe is away from work. He's realigning his gray matter at the moment, so it's just me today. But I'll be joined by neuroscientist, author, and science communicator David Eagleman about his new book, Live Wired, The Inside Story of the Ever-Changing Brain. Now, we've mentioned David Eagleman on the show many times before. He's uh, an adjunct professor at Stanford University and is CEO of Neosensory, a company that develops devices for sensory substitution. You may also know him from his previous books about the human brain, his TV series, The Brain with David Eagleman, and his role as a scientific advisor on HBO's Westworld and the TNT series Perception. I'm recording this on a Monday, and I actually read Live Wired over the weekend. It's a highly addictive read, and one that I think our listeners will, will really enjoy. David does an amazing job breaking down the, the inner workings of the brain via relatable pop culture and historical metaphors, everything from the colonization of the Americas to Mr. Potato Head and Ellen Ripley from Aliens. It's published by Pantheon Books, and you can currently grab it as a hardcover, an ebook, or an audiobook. And the fun thing is that, that David reads the audiobook. It's always great when you, when you get that with an audiobook. So, without, uh, without any further ado, let's jump right in. David Eagleman, thanks for joining me today. Great to be here, Robert. First of all, I have—I just have to say that this book was such an engaging read. I actually read it uh, all over the weekend, and while I was familiar with some of the the findings and technologies discussed, uh, th there was plenty I hadn't been exposed to yet, and it was all delivered in such a fashion that it all ended up feeling like a, you know, almost kind of like a revelation. Um, and and I feel like that revelation is really well uh, summarized in the title of the book, Live Wired. If you would, could you summarize the basic difference between the idea of the live wired understanding of our our brain as opposed to previous notions of how the brain worked. Yeah, I mean the whole the, the whole thing is that when you first pick up a neuroscience textbook as a young person you see a picture of the brain and it says this parts are vision this parts are hearing this parts are touch and so on. But in fact, um, I guess what I've spent the last 20 years, you know, in my laboratory really understanding the lesson of is that the brain is a is a dynamic system that's constantly moving around. And so, for example, if you go blind, the part that we would have called your visual system gets taken over by hearing and touch. If you 
lose an arm, the part of your body map that has an arm gets taken over by neighboring areas and so on. The whole thing is this incredibly dynamic system. It's not like anything that we know how to build. Um, you know, here in Silicon Valley, where I live, everything is about hardware and software. And engineers are praised for building an efficient system where you've got these two layers and that's it. Um, but what's happening in our skulls is an entirely different kind of technology. And so I, in the book, I ended up coining a new term for this, live-wired or liveware. And the idea with liveware is that every moment of your life, this is reconfiguring itself. So you've got 86 billion neurons. These are the cell types in the brain. You've got about 0.2 quadrillion connections. And uh, every moment of your life, these things are changing their strength of connection. They're unplugging, they're replugging elsewhere. They're seeking around. You, what you have are these dense jungles. And you know this level of complexity is something that bankrupts our language. We don't have any way of talking about 0.2 quadrillion connections moving and changing. But everything in your life, every experience that you have um, changes who you are. When you learn, for example, that my name is David, there's a physical change in the structure of your brain. And that's what it means for you to then remember you know, two months later, oh, who's the guy you had on your podcast? Oh, David, you know, it's like, it's, it's this constantly changing system. And it's um, unlike anything that we know how to build at the moment. So, um, you know, as you, as you saw in the book, I, I tell these different stories just by way of introduction that are so fascinating. Like you can take out half the brain in a child, for example, when children have this really bad type of epilepsy, there's a, surgery that they go through where half the brain is removed and they're just fine. Cognitively, they're totally fine because the rest of their brain, the other half says, oh, okay, I'm going to rewire the functions that are that went missing from there. Sometimes a child is born with only half a brain, you know, and things just get uh, get rewired so that it, it all is there. And um, we can't, you know, you can't do this with your cell phone or your computer. You can't take out half the circuitry and expect it to still function but it works just fine, especially with a young brain. Now, with all of this in mind, uh, and this live-wired understanding of the brain in mind, um, I thought we might back up to a very basic question uh, that, that sometimes I guess we don't think about because we're—I mean, we—we're we're trapped in in the brain. We can't see the forest for the trees. But what what does the brain do? So the brain is locked in silence and darkness inside the vault of your skull, and all it's trying to do is make a model of the world, as in, I've got all this incoming data. And by the way, the data that comes into the brain is just spikes, just little electrical spikes in these neurons. It doesn't know that these spikes represent photons and these spikes represent air compression waves and these spikes represent mixtures of molecules hitting a membrane and so on. All it knows is, oh, I've got data coming in as zeros and ones. And, um, and it knows that it can control a body and so its job is to figure out, all right, how do I control the body? How does that change the spikes coming in? And how do I make a model of the world? And this is an extraordinary technology that we have carrying around on our shoulders. Um, as I said, we, we don't know how to build technology like this, and we're just scratching the surface of even trying to figure this out. But that's what the brain is doing, locked in its, in its vault, is figuring out, okay, how do I understand the world? And, and it's really extraordinarily good at, at extracting patterns and eventually making predictions. And um, yeah, that is, that is the main job that it's trying to accomplish. 
Now, a big part of the book deals with how our senses uh, um, you know, speak to the brain and how the brain works around limitations, uh, such as the, the ones you mentioned with the half of the brain being missing, et cetera, and also uh, you know, relating limbs. Uh, and, uh, and, and I love how you use these various metaphors to explain that to the reader. Would you mind uh, explaining to our listeners how our brains are like Mr. Potato Head? Yeah, so this is something that struck me many years ago where I realized that, so we've got all these sensors like our eyes and our ears and our nose and our fingertips, all these things we're used to. And so we just sort of think of these as fundamental. But but when you look across the animal kingdom, what you find are all these other weird kinds of sensors, things that you could take in, like snakes take in infrared information, uh, honeybees take in ultraviolet when you look at something like the black ghost knifefish, it has electroreceptors where it's pulling in information about perturbations in electrical fields. Um, lots of uh, birds and cows and insects have magnetoreception where they are picking up on the magnetic field of the planet and they're navigating that way. And so on. And what I realized is Mother Nature doesn't actually have to recreate the brain every time she does this. Instead, the principles of brain operation She's figured that out at the beginning, and then she can just plug in anything she wants in terms of what is the information that would be useful to sense. And that's why I suggested this potato head model of of how to think about this, which is to say, you just take any sensors and you stick it in and it's good to go. The brain figures out, oh, okay, I've got this kind of spikes coming in, um, and it seems to correlate with this other sense, and it seems to allow me to find food or avoid predators or whatever. And so it just figures out what to do with that information. And so this is a very new kind of way to think about the brain. It's essentially understanding the brain as a general purpose compute device. You feed in whatever kind of data stream you want, and it's, and it's good to go. And this you know, explains a lot of what happens evolutionarily with genetics. It just What it allows Mother Nature to do is just tweak around with the genetics to make new kinds of sensors. But one of the really amazing things you uh, you discuss in this is that uh, is, is that you can plug uh, an, an eye into an ear hole or an ear into an eye hole on the Mr. Potato Head of our of our brain, and the brain will roll with the data. That that's exactly right. And so this is an area called sensory substitution, which is to say, you can feed information into the brain via an unusual channel. And so something I started in my lab about ten years ago was seeing if we could build sensory substitution for people who are deaf. So what we do, uh, we started by building this as a vest with vibratory motors in it. So you've got a whole bunch of little buzzers like the buzzer in your cell phone. And um, it captures sound and turns that into patterns of vibration on the torso. And it turns out that that worked really well. We could get people who are profoundly deaf to start understanding what is happening in the auditory world just predicated on this spatio-temporal pattern of vibrations on their skin. And the reason it worked is because it doesn't matter how the information gets to the brain. As long as it gets there, the brain will establish the correlations and figure out what to do with it. So as an example, if you see, you know, the dog's mouth moving and you feel the buzzing on your skin, you know, your brain puts that together really easily. Or, you know, you see somebody speaking or, or we train people by showing a word and you, you know, you feel the word on the vest and you start understanding what's going on. So what we did then is uh, we shrunk it down to the size of a wristband. And um, because you and I are on video, Robert, you can see the, the wristband that I'm wearing right now. It's, you know, it looks about the size of a Fitbit. And it has very sophisticated computation in here where it's capturing sound and turning that into patterns of vibration around the skin of the wrist. 
And um, so what we've been doing is we uh, this actually now uh, I spun a company out of my lab called Neo Sensory, and we um, have been on the market since March, and we're now on wrists all around the world. So people who are deaf or have hearing loss of some degree wear this, and they are picking up on the auditory world through their skin. Now, the interesting part is this is exactly what the inner ear is doing. Your inner ear is just registering vibrations of your eardrum, and it breaks sound up into from high to low frequency, and then it ships it off to the brain. And all we're doing is transferring the inner ear to to the wrist, and it works. So that's the idea of sensory substitution is your um, just getting the information there via a different route and the brain figures out what to do with it. And, and if this weren't amazing enough, there's this, then this, this other uh, additional step, this idea of, of plugging all new things into it, like new forms of sensory information, new, even, uh, you know, not only limbs of replacement, but artificial additional limbs. You use the, the example of uh, Dr. Octopus from the Spider-Man comics. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how even like this 1960s sci-fi concept is not that far removed from our current understanding of the brain? Yeah. So um, let me actually, let me say two things, actually. One is what we can do. Uh, so let me just separate out sensory information coming in and motor information going out. So sensory information coming in, one of the things we're doing with the, with our wristband called buzz um, is we can not only take in, sound information for people who are deaf, but we could actually expand the sensory information that you would normally have. So for example, with somebody who's not deaf, we feed in ultraviolet or infrared or, or things like that, where we're expanding senses that you already have. And then we're doing this other thing called sensory addition, where we're feeding in brand new senses that you've never had. So we can feed in any data stream with this, like stock market data or Twitter data or factory information or anything at all feeding this in. And as long as your brain can make correlations with what it's seeing or hearing around it, then the brain can figure out how to utilize that information. So we actually just finished a a big developer contest where people did all kinds of projects with, you know, um, monitoring air quality or monitoring, you know, blood sugar in your bloodstream or um, um, many, many different kinds of things, monitoring, you know, feeling electrical fields and so on. Um, so all this, by the way, if, if anybody's interested, we have an open API and an SDK for Buzz. You can get this on neocentury.com and pursue any kind of project you want this way. So we've had hundreds of people just making their own thing, which has been, which has been very cool. Now, to switch to the second thing about motor output, um, yeah, it turns out that your brain um, is not pre-programmed to drive your body, but instead can figure out whatever the affordances are of whatever's there. So just as an example, you know, one of the things I, I tell the story about this dog um, that was born without forelimbs, it didn't have its front legs. And so it just, she walks bipedally. She walks on her back legs like a human. And presumably any dog could do this, but uh, they're not sufficiently motivated. But so she just walks around on her hind legs. And um, what this illustrates is that dog brains are not pre-programmed to drive dog bodies, but instead they figure out, okay, here's what I can do. I need to get to my food, to my water, to my mother, whatever. This is how I do it. And so um, also I, you know, tell the story of the guy who's the world's best archer. He has the world's record for best archery shot and he doesn't have arms. So he does this with his legs. 
And it's just another illustration that the brain figures out whatever body it's in. It says, oh, okay, I can figure out how to drive this. And of course, we see this when people, for example, get an amputation. Let's say they lose an arm in a motorcycle accident or something. The map of their body in their brain readjusts to say, oh, okay, I, I see. I've got a body without an arm, so I'm just going to figure that out now. Okay, so because it is not pre-programmed, it's extremely flexible um, I think that we could actually build any kind of body we want. So um, coming back to your question, I you know mentioned about Doc Ock in the 1960s, which debuted in Spider-Man, this scientist who plugs in four robotic arms so that he can actually do extra things and pour beakers and so on, and he controls this with his brain. But then there's an explosion in his lab, and he turns evil, and he scales buildings and learns new forms of martial arts with, with eight arms and so on. And um, Dr. Octavius starts to go by Doc Ock. Anyway, um, the, the, exactly as you said, this is not as far off and weird as we used to think, because now what we're doing is with, for example, patients who are paralyzed – um, you can put electrodes into their motor cortex and they can learn to drive a robotic arm. Even though they are paralyzed, they drive the robotic arm with their thoughts, which sounds weird, but that's, of course, how you drive your fleshy arm. You just, you know, you think about it, you learn the, you learn what the output signals are that make your arm respond. It's the same thing with a robotic arm. You can do that. And there have been experiments with monkeys where they their bodies work fine. They're not paralyzed, but they can drive a third arm with you know with their thoughts. So they're driving a robotic arm with their thoughts. There was an experiment done where a monkey um, uses his motor cortex to make a robot walk. But the interesting part was uh, the robot happened to be across the world. The monkey was in North Carolina, and the robot was in Japan. And the signals from the monkey's brain were being sent over the internet. And you can get the robot. You know, the monkey to control the robot just with the spikes in its motor cortex. And so um, I think it's going to be no time at all before we really start controlling external devices with our thoughts. And one of the things, one of the frameworks that I build is this issue that what we think of as the self, what you think of as your body, just as a matter of control. What can you control with your body? And I think this is, by the way, why we understand our reflections in a mirror to be us because you move and it moves. And so you're driving what you're seeing over there. So you think, oh yeah, that's me over there. Um, but what this means is in, you know, make up a number 35 years when we are controlling a robot with our thoughts, it is essentially an extension of our body. What it means is that that'll become us. It'll be a part of, uh, of your body. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but I'll be right back with David Eagleman. All right, I'm back with David Eagleman. In in the book, you talk about the the live wired brain as um, as, as being a, a place of competition um, based on the input that's coming in, and I was just really uh, 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 intrigued by this uh, this new theory of dreaming that you discuss. So, would you would you mind uh, uh, sharing that with our listeners? Yeah. Um, yeah, this is something very cool that's come out of our studies of plasticity. And um, here it is. It's that when any part of the brain goes unused, it gets taken over. And so, for example, if you go blind, your systems for hearing and touch and all of that real estate will take over the part of the brain that we used to call the visual cortex. So the surprise in neuroscience has been how rapidly this happens. 
um, what a group found about 13 years ago was that if you take sighted people and you blindfold them tightly and you stick them in a brain scanner, within about an hour, you can start seeing activity in the visual cortex just based on um, hearing or touch. If you touch them on the hand or something, you start seeing activation in the visual cortex. Now, it's not because the neurons have had a chance to grow that fast from hearing and touch into the visual cortex. Instead, there's all kinds of cross wiring in the brain where those systems are already reaching over into the visual cortex. It's just that they're normally silenced and they're inhibited so they don't get to do anything. But that inhibition starts wearing off very quickly. And so I was really shocked by the speed at which hearing and touch could take over. And so my student and I were talking about this one day. And what we realized is there's a very critical thing that happens because we live on a planet that rotates into darkness for half the time. You know, in the dark, you can still hear and touch and taste and smell and all that just fine, but you can't see. And of course, I'm talking about evolutionary time, not recent electricity times. And so um, what this means is that the visual cortex has always been at a big disadvantage when the planet rotates into darkness. And so what we realized is, wow, if it doesn't want to get taken over by the other senses, it has to have some way of defending its territory. And what we realized was that that's what dreams are. You, you have this very specific circuitry that starts in the midbrain and goes through a series of steps and just blasts activity into the visual cortex every night, about every 90 minutes. And, and that's its only job. It just blasts activity in there. It's a very specialized circuitry. And it's very specific of the type of thing that to the anatomist's eye is, is not accidental. And so... And of course, because it's our visual cortex, we, you know, we see and we think, oh, I'm having this full, rich visual experience. Um, and of course, dream content might have to do with, you know, it certainly has to do with what you've experienced during the day and which synapses are still hot and so on. But, but the point is that it's just blasting activity in there to defend the visual system against takeover. And so we've now done big studies on this, for example, where... Uh, I'll just give you one thing that we just published recently where we compared 25 different species of primates and we looked at how plastic they were because across even the primate kingdom, you have this um, you know, spectrum of how plastic you drop into the world and then how much REM sleep they get. In other words, how much you know, rapid eye movement or, or that dream sleep because this is when dreams happen. And it turns out that the more plastic you are as a species – the more dream sleep you have because you need to defend it more as opposed to the other end of the spectrum. Let's say lemurs drop into the world and they're pretty much fully baked. Um, and they have very short, you know, adolescence uh, time and walking time and weaning time and all that stuff. Um, they don't have much dream sleep because they don't need it because their brain is sort of baked into place. And by the way, I'll just mention one other thing because people sometimes ask about this, which is, um, you know, they say, do blind people dream? Yes, blind people have dreams where activity is getting shot into their occipital lobe at the back of their head. But because they are blind, they don't experience that as vision. Instead, they experience it as hearing and touch. So blind people's dreams are all about, you know, weird, bizarre things just like ours. But it's not involving vision. It's, you know, I'm I'm walking around my house and all my furniture is rearranged and I'm feeling stuff. And then there's a bear and I'm feeling the bear and all that kind of stuff. So, um, but it's exactly the same circuitry that they have because this is a very fundamental circuitry that is burned into the system and it doesn't care whether your eyes are working or not because it's, mo it's more, it's deeper than that. And has working on this, has this changed the way you reflect on your own dreams at all? You know, I've always actually felt that dreams are not terribly meaningful. Like my own, you know, I wake <laughs> up, I, I've always described this as sort of 
sticking your head in the night blender each night. I, I kind of hate dreams. <laughs> Um, <clears throat> but now I have a deeper appreciation for why I'm going through that night blender, because um, if not, I would wake up and my visual system would be really disadvantaged. It would be taken over in large part by hearing and by touch. Especially in the later portions of the book, you, you get into to memories and, and even identity. And there's, there's a lot that really seems to resonate with the state of the world right now. How do you feel this book speaks to the, the 2020 reader? Yeah, I think there are, I think there are many ways. Um, I'll mention two. One is actually let me start with this optimistic one, which is um, as lousy as 2020 has been for everybody. And you know, this is a year where there's serious spikes for everybody in stress, anxiety, depression. It's just there's all kinds of bad stuff. But I will mention one tiny silver lining of this is that from the point of view of brain plasticity. We've all been kicked off of our hamster wheels and we're all being forced to rethink many things that we never thought about before. So I mentioned before that our brain is locked in silence and darkness and it's trying to make an internal model of the world out there. And we all pretty much had that in 2019. We thought, okay, I get how the world works. I get how things operate, how people respond, how to get toilet paper, how to get food in my fridge, stuff like that. And all of a sudden everything changed and from the point of view of brain plasticity, this is actually really useful. It has forced a kind of creativity, an unwanted one for sure, but it's forced a kind of creativity where you're having to rethink everything. We're having to understand many things in, in more depth that we never thought twice about before. And um, it turns out when we look at things like, you know, dementia, what happens is people retire and they stop challenging themselves and their brains end up in a worse and worse state. And the people who retire and end up fine and much better off are those who keep challenging themselves with novel things. And that includes even basic things like just, you know, making sure you're not just sitting around watching TV, but instead, you know, taking on new sorts of challenges and tasks and keeping an active social life and stuff like that. So anyway, this is what's happening to all of us. And I have a slight suspicion, this will be hard to prove, but uh, just an intuition that we may find a slight dip in dementia um, in in the coming years, for people who have been you know, who've lived through this early 2020s, um, simply because they've really gotten a chance to build all kinds of new roadways in their brain, whereas they might not have done that as as adults. The second thing that I'll mention uh, as far as 2020 is one of the things that my lab has been studying for a very long time is social neuroscience, which is this issue of how there's a lot of the brain circuitry that's devoted to other people. In other words, you know, we normally look at the brain and we think, okay, there's hearing, there's touch, there's vision and so on. But in fact, a lot of your circuitry has to do with modeling other people. And you might know a thousand people and you've actually got circuitry devoted to every one of them and circuitry devoted to, okay, who knows who and have they dated before and blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's, it's a very sophisticated social system that we're carrying around. And so one of the things that got me interested a long time ago, and we've published and written on this for years, but suddenly it really is important, is this issue about in-groups and out-groups. And it turns out that um, we, here, I'll just tell you really quickly about a study we did. We, we take people into the brain scanner and we show them six hands on a screen and the computer goes around and selects one of the hands at random. And then you see that hand get stabbed with a syringe needle. And what happens is you really cringe when you see that. It's, it's awful to see somebody's hand get stabbed with, with a needle. And that activates this network in your brain that is summarized as the pain matrix, which is to say you're, you're essentially feeling the pain of that. Um, 
that is the neural basis of empathy. You care about somebody else because you're immediately running a simulation of, ah, what if that was my hand, even though it's not physically your hand getting touched. But what we do then is we put a one-word label on each of these hands, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, atheist, Hindu, Scientologist, and then the computer goes around and picks a hand and see the hand get stabbed. And the question is, do you care, does your brain care as much if it's someone in your out-group versus a member of your in-group? And that's exactly what happens. If it's a member of your in-group, you have a much bigger response. And if it's a member of your out-group, your brain doesn't really care that much. And it turns out that we do all kinds of versions of this, just as one example, we then say, okay, the year is 2025, and these three religions have teamed up against these three religions. And now, your two allies, you care slightly more than you did a minute ago, just because you're told in this one-sense thing that, that they're allied with you, and the others are still clearly in your outgroup, so your brain just doesn't care as much. And by the way, just as a side note, Atheists have exactly the same thing about seeing atheist hands get stabbed. So it's not an indictment of religion. It's just an issue about in-groups and out-groups, who you feel like, you know, what your labels are. Um, so we've done a lot of work on that. If anyone's interested, I, I wrote an, uh, an article in The Economist last year called, Does Your Brain Care About Other People? It Depends. Um, but all of a sudden, in 2020, unfortunately, all of this stuff is more relevant because society is really finding ways to divide themselves up with in-groups and out-groups. Um, you know, some people blame social media. The fact is, you know, I'm a real student of history. And the fact is that we've had this kind of stuff happen all the time with the Chinese Cultural Revolution or the Russian Revolution or, you know, or what happened in Nazi Germany. Or we, we've, we've seen this stuff lots of times before the Internet. So it's not like the Internet is this, the single thing to blame here. This is just human nature. Um, so anyway, this is what I think is relevant to 2020. All right. We're going to take one more break, but I'll be right back with David Eagleman. All right. I'm back with David Eagleman. So, well, let's, let's take a, a brief journey into the future here. Um, again, coming back to the idea of, um, neural technology in the future, allowing us to augment our senses, our bodies. If you, let's say you were to enter a state of suspended animation and emerge a hundred years from now, how much of the human sensory experience uh, will have changed, and how different, how difficult do you think it would be for a twenty-second century human to relate these senses to you? Yeah, I think I think this is a, a key issue, which is to say we have certain what are called qualia, which is, you know, our internal experience of something like vision and hearing and so on. And, you know, obviously this stuff is completely made up by our brains in the sense that, just as an example, colors don't exist in the world. All you have is different wavelengths of electromagnetic radiation, but your brain comes up with a way of summarizing things quickly so it can see the ripe fruit against the green leaves. It says, okay, I'm going to call that red and that green, perfect. Um, even though that doesn't exist. So we have this internal experience of the world and of course, you know, sound also doesn't exist as such. You've just got air compression waves, but we turn it into, you know, beautiful voices and music and so on. Um, okay, but here's the thing. It's because your brain has lots of experience with this that it eventually turns it into this direct perceptual experience. And so the question is now, if you fed in a new kind of data stream through the neosensory buzz, for example, the wristband, if you fed in a completely new kind of thing, would you come to have a direct perceptual experience of it? And our data right now suggests, yes, that, that you would. And the thing that's so weird about this is 
there's actually no way to describe it to somebody who has not had that experience. So imagine that you had a friend who is colorblind and you tried to explain orange to your friend. There's no way that she would understand. She could eventually pretend and say, okay, Robert, just quit talking. I'm going to pretend I understand. But she wouldn't ever understand orangeness. Why? Because you have to experience it to, to get it. And so, um, and you know, if you have a blind friend, try to explain what vision is. Your, your friend says, well, I don't understand. You're, you're trying to, you're, you're capturing photon, you're capturing millions of photons every second from across great distances. And there's just no way that they can understand what that's like. And so the same thing applies, I think, for 22nd century people who are getting direct data streams fed to their brain of stock market or microwave data information or, um, you know, gamma ray information or whatever the thing is that they're feeding in. You're like the person who doesn't understand what orange is or what vision is to them. And they can try really hard to explain to you. And you can even pretend at some point they understand, but you, you just won't. And um, so I think we're on the verge of a really interesting moment in history where, where we're going to essentially start speciating as in people are going to have such different experiences that they won't be able to relate them to each other. Now, let me just say, there's a sense in which this is no different from what we've always had in the sense that, you know, you grew up in your hometown and had your experiences. I grew up in my hometown and had my experiences. And there's a sense in which brains are pretty different anyway. Um, but this is just going to be more of that where I'm, you know, plugged directly into Twitter and you're plugged directly into infrared information and we just can't quite get what the other person is experiencing. So uh, you worked as a science advisor on HBO's Westworld. That's right. That's right. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the things that I've found in, in advising for television in general is that there are all these topics that I and my colleagues have debated for years that were, you know, for example, the question of could a robot become conscious and what would that mean? And would they have free will and so on? Um, and, you know, we write all these academic papers on it, but it's it's such a cool opportunity to get these questions to, you know, into the public square with fiction. And so something like Westworld is tremendously successful into getting people to think about these sorts of questions. And one of the things that I did as scientific advisor was um, – got our vest, our neosensory vest into the show. So, you know, it was, I don't know if anybody out there uh, saw this episode during season two, but um, these military contractors drop into Westworld to take care of the hosts, the bad robots, and they are feeling on their vest, their location of the robots. So, oh, there's location over there. there sorry, there's a, there's a robot over there. There's one over there. And then they can shoot them accordingly. But we've actually used exactly that for people who are blind. We've used the same idea, which is they're wearing the vest and they're feeling where people are around them. And, oh, there's somebody coming up behind me. There's someone over here on my left and so on. And then we can add navigation directions on top of that. Um, yeah, so it buzzes. Okay, go forward. Oh, go to the left now. Go straight and so on. Um, so, yeah, that was a very cool, very cool opportunity that we had to get our technology into this futuristic show. I love that sequence in the show because I, I felt like like a lesser show would have just copied aliens and just had you know blips on a map, uh, and but this felt uh, this this felt thoroughly science fictional in nature. You know, I mean, but then it, of course is using actual technology that we're d developing today. Exactly right. Now you mentioned um, Westworld bringing scientific topics or just topics concerning things like consciousness out into the public square. Uh, the first season, at least, uh, discussed uh, Julian Jane's bicameral mind hypothesis. I brought that up a little bit. And I know you wrote about this a little bit in Incognito. 
but what are your general thoughts on this hypothesis? You know, what's interesting is that no one actually knows if it's correct or not correct. So what Julian James proposed is that it may be that you essentially have two sides to the brain, the left and the right side, literally, the two hemispheres, and that those used to be more separate. And um, so it was as though people were hearing a voice from somebody else. And what he argues is that if you look at ancient literature, like ancient Greek literature and so on, there's always this thing about hearing a voice from a god and so on. Um, and the argument is that very recently, the left and right hemisphere started connecting in a deeper way um, and so there was this you know, super highway of fibers that goes back and forth between them. And so what we have now is a unified consciousness instead of two separate uh, voices going on in our heads. Uh, as I said, nobody really knows if this is right or not because there's no simple way to test this directly. What I argued in Incognito, though, uh, is essentially a, a distant cousin of that, which is that what is absolutely clear is that we are not a single thing. So we think of ourselves as individuals, meaning not divisible into different parts. But, but in fact, who you are is a collection of different neural networks that all have different drives. And this is why we can argue with ourselves and cuss at ourselves and contract with ourselves and cajole ourselves. Who's talking with whom here? It's all us, but it's different parts of us. So this is why if I take some warm chocolate chip cookies out of the oven and put them in front of you, part of your brain says, don't eat it, you'll get fat. And part of your brain says, that looks like a high energy sort. You know, I totally want to eat those cookies. And part of your brain says, okay, how about I eat the cookies, but I'll go to the gym tonight or whatever. Like everything that we do in our lives, we have arguments with ourselves about, okay, what should I do here? A part of me wants to eat this, part of me doesn't want to eat. And so what's going on there are all the different voices, the different political parties of this neural parliament that we have running under the hood. And this is the uh, framework that I built in, in incognito is that we've got this parliament and the way you go just depends on the majority vote at any uh, given moment. And so you're not one thing, you're a collection of, of voters. All right. I have one, one last question for you. Um, if, if you could go back in time and serve as a science advisor on any past science fiction film, what would it be? What would you most like to go back and tweak or correct or make a little more neuroscientifically interesting? Oh gosh. I'd have to think about that. Off the top of my head, um, something like The Matrix is terrific um, because that's an example, actually, of, of a piece of fiction that got everybody talking about this issue of how, how do you know? Like, you know, Descartes said, how would I know if I'm a brain in a vat? Um, and, and I just think that I'm feeling and hearing and seeing these different things. And that, that got upgraded, that question, by philosophers um, at different stages in history. But, but essentially that's the question is how do I, how do I know if there's a bunch of scientists that are zapping my brain with electrodes that are making me feel that I'm talking with you on zoom and the weather's nice outside and so on. But then the matrix, I think single-handedly upgraded that question to how do I know if I'm in the matrix, if I am a simulation and, and as things have gone on, especially in the last, I don't know, 10 years in Silicon Valley, it feels like, People talk about that question more and more seriously all the time because you look at our computational capacity and you think, well, gosh, it's really not that hard to make super sophisticated VR in 2020. So what's this going to look like in 2120? I mean, you could make something that is absolutely convincing. I mean, forget it. You can do that in 2030. It's just like 100% convincing. So the question is, how would you know if you exist in a simulation or not? And what Descartes concluded, by the way, is that there is no way for him to know. 
Um, and this is what led to his very famous declaration, uh, je pense donc je suis, I think, therefore I am. Um, because what he meant by that is, look, I don't know if I'm in a simulation, but all I can tell you is that there's somebody thinking about this question. So I exist, whoever, whoever, whatever situation I'm actually in, it doesn't matter. There's some I that exists. And that was actually a, a quite important move in philosophy. But the point is, we have absolutely no way of knowing if we are in a simulation or not. And uh, we don't even have any good hypotheses about how we would be able to find that out. And by the way, it might not matter. I mean, you know, if I told you with certainty that we are or are not, it would it might not change anything about what you're doing. Um, so, but so I would love to have been involved in in that movie and and add in just a few neurosciency uh, twists and sentences and questions there. Awesome, David. Thanks again for chatting with me today. Great, thank you, Robert. This was a blast. All right, so there you have it. Uh, again, the book is Live Wired, The Inside Story of the Ever-Changing Brain by David Eagleman. It's out now. And if you want to check out Neosensory, you can just go to neosensory.com. If you'd like to listen to other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find us wherever you get your podcast and wherever that happens to be. We just ask that you rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks, as always, to Seth Nicholas Johnson uh, for his uh, recording skills and editing skills and bringing all this together, especially with short uh, turnaround today. And if you'd like to email us uh, about this interview, about this episode, or about uh, forthcoming episodes or past episodes, you can do so at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows.